to the Boom Clap podcast. Our guest today is Andrew Pudua, the founder and director of the Institute for Excellence in Writing. He's a father of seven. He travels and speaks around the world, addressing issues related to teaching, writing, thinking, spelling, and music with clarity, insight, practical experience, and humor. We just finished recording with him mm-hmm. and you guys are going to love this episode. I feel lighter and brighter <laughs> after talking to him. Totally. Ah. I would love if people felt that way after talking to me, but I, <laughs> I just, it was such a, I don't know, fulfilling and uplifting conversation. It was. And you guys, I said it a few times during the actual interview with him, but if you're like on the fence about listening to this episode because you don't have kids or maybe you're young and married and you don't have kids yet, but you want them in the future or you're a grandma or something, listen anyway, because you know, if you're a young married person who's looking forward to having children, you want to learn this stuff now. I wish that I would have learned this sort of stuff and had this kind of voice speaking into my life um, Mm -hmm. in those earlier stages. Or if you're a grandparent or an uncle or an aunt or something, you'll want to know this too, so that you can continue to speak into your kids' lives and into your grandkids' lives. This episode is amongst one of my favorites for sure. Like it was just such a pleasure to sit through this conversation. Yeah. His personality, knowledge, and application of life experience Mm -hmm. is just somebody you want to sit down and have coffee with. That's how I feel. So (laughs) anyway, all right, before we get into the episode, guys, don't forget to follow our podcast, leave a review if you haven't yet. Even if you have, I think you can go back and leave another written review. Those really help propel us uh, to new listeners. We really appreciate that. And it's a free way to support our podcast. If you would like to support our podcast monetarily, you can go to the boomclapcommunity.com and check out your options there. All right, let's get into the episode. Hi, Andrew. We are so happy to have you on our podcast with us today. I just started homeschooling this last year. So I'm going into my second year of homeschooling. Cecily has homeschooled for quite a long time, but going into homeschooling for me personally this year, um, IEW was a curriculum that everybody recommended to me. Like Mm -hmm. if I talk to my sister who's homeschooled her kids for quite some time, women from co-op and Cecily, I got multiple um, recommendations for math, different recommendations for, you know, science and just how to do everything. But um, IEW is one thing that everyone universally recommended. And so my kids did the grammar this year and they very, very much enjoyed it. And I just wanted to say that right off the bat. So for our homeschool audience, it's something you can really look at. Um, So Andrew, before we get into the outline of things that you just said was five hours worth of content we could cover, which I know it is. Um, I would just like to hear a little bit of background and allow our audience to hear some background from you, um, just personal life, and then how you initiated the Institute for Excellence in Writing. Yeah, sure. So um, I am a father of seven. Uh, All of my children are grown. I have now 15 plus one on the way grandchildren. And so I just like to right up front tell all sorts of young people, you know, have as many kids as you can, because that gives you the best chance of having as many grandchildren as possible. (laughs) And that gives you the best chance of having some of them live near you, because it's really the only great thing about getting old is grandchildren. Uh, So I'm very blessed in that way. But um, I began my adult 
a teaching career as a music teacher. I was teaching Suzuki violin and kinder music full time, you know, working as hard as I could, trying to keep my wife home so we could homeschool kids. And it was tough. So I was always kind of looking for a side gig. What could I do to bring in a little bit more money so I could afford to continue doing what I loved, which was, you know, teaching violin and kinder music, mostly to young children. And uh, during the whole process of my early life, I was working for a small school in Montana. And that school decided to send all of their teachers to Canada to take a course called the Blended Soundsite Program of Learning. And this was in northern Alberta, up near um, Sicily, you might know, um, four hours north of Edmonton, if you can mm. believe that. I Lesser Slave Lake. <laughs> no. Well, in the summer, it wasn't bad except for the mosquitoes. Right. But uh, that's where I learned the writing program, uh, Structure and Style and Composition, from uh, Dr. James B. Webster. And I came back and I taught a little, uh, a small group of children in this school, this writing program. And it went really well. And I liked it. I immediately kind of thought, this is like a Suzuki method hmm. for teaching writing to kids. It had so many of the similar elements. And so I went up the next summer to take that same 10-day teacher training course again. I actually moved to a different city. And instead of working for a school, I started doing some tutoring and after-school writing classes for mostly my two oldest daughters who were uh, 11 and 9 at that time and their friends. And I really liked teaching these writing classes. And so I kind of did that for a few years. I kept going up to Canada to, to hang out with those people. And they said, well, if you're going to keep coming back, you can join our team and help teach us to other teachers. And you know, it was mostly 100% school teachers there uh, in the summers. But I started doing some writing workshops for homeschool kids down in the States. And uh, they all liked it and thought, wow, this works really well. And the kids liked it. So uh, from 95 to 99, I was doing both things, teaching music full time and then just running around doing some seminars, you know, on the weekends where I could get a gig, you know, um, and by 99, I was making more money selling videotapes and teaching writing seminars than mm. I was teaching music. So I thought, okay, it's time to go full time. Mm. So we moved from Idaho to California in 99. And that's where I really started doing this seriously. Um, DVDs came into existence around 2003, 2004. And so that expanded, uh, you know, the, the capability of producing materials for sale. I started to speak at homeschool conventions um, a lot. And uh, just over the last 20 years, it's just got bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's kind of where it's at. Um, I really love what I do. I fortunately now have a bunch of very competent people who do all the things that um, I don't have to do to, to have a business. Mm -hmm. And so that's a blessing. And of course, you know, meeting people like your friends at conventions and doing webinars and podcasts. Um, 2020 was actually a, a huge growth year for us. So mm -hmm. while I didn't get on an airplane for 16 months and didn't go anywhere, I think I talked to five times as many people because of the proliferation of virtual events. And mm -hmm. that really expanded our international 
outreach uh, as well. So that's the thumbnail sketch of how I got to do what I'm doing. Yeah, I can just imagine how much growth you've seen over these last few years. I'm sure it's been astronomical. And it's a good thing because I think, you know, 2020 kind of, it did a lot of things, but it kind of made people, even though there was some forced homeschooling and some forced changes to life, I think it really forced people to think about a lot of things and the way we did a lot of things. And I think that's one massive positive that came out of all of that we've been through over the past while. But something that you said there that, I would love you to talk about a little bit more just as far as values go. You said you were working as hard as you could to keep your wife home so that you could homeschool. And I think that that really plays to a lot of concerns that people have right now. We live, you're in California. Things are extremely expensive there. I'm in British Columbia, just about an hour and a half outside Vancouver. Things are very expensive here. Things are very expensive everywhere right now. And I think we're also very comfortable, right? We're very comfortable being comfortable. And so to have that idea that you're going to work as hard as you can, whether that means working two or three jobs or starting a side business in order to fulfill that value that you have to educate your kids at home. I think that's a foreign concept to a lot of people or at least a difficult concept. So what was that driver? Like what made that such a strong value for you? Well, my wife also was a teacher. I mean, we met, we were working for the small little private school in Montana and, you know, nobody's making very much money. So we started looking at the options for schools. Um, the older girls went to kind of a cottage school situation for a couple mm-hmm. years, and it was really very good. It wasn't pricey. It was basically like just someone homeschooling their daughter with 10 other kids. Um, and, and then that kind of disbanded. And so what were the options? Public school, my wife having an elementary education degree from a public university was pretty sure that we weren't going to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, private schools were a lot of money given the small salaries and, and then, you know, she's pregnant and, you know, I don't want her to have, uh, you know, I don't want her to put a baby in childcare or whatever. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the idea is, yeah, we're just going to keep her home and make this work somehow. And uh, for me, you know, honestly, I was teaching music all the time, running a little side business with vending machines and working in a restaurant as a waiter two or three nights a week. And that was, that was enough to, you know... Mm-hmm keep a roof over our head and, and mm-hmm. get food and keep buy clothes. But it was a very frugal lifestyle. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for us, you know, family was by far the more important thing than any level of luxury. And um, so, you know, I think people just have to hit a priority. The world wants to sell you as much mm. stuff as possible. The world wants you to spend as much money as possible. True. The world wants to convince you that you need to pay for everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the truth is sometimes, um, I won't say poverty in the harsh sense, mm. but cheerful poverty, as Chaucer mm. put it, is sometimes mm-hmm. the more creative uh, because right. rather than say, how can I buy that? You think, how can we make that? Or how can yeah. we figure out to do without that? Or how can we do mm-hmm. something different than that? And, you know, it's interesting. I have a couple daughters who live on very low income 
and they are the most creative and the most Mm -hmm. happy of the kids in a way too. So there's a, a level of satisfaction with having the right priority that I think mm-hmm. outweighs this. And you get so easily trapped into however much money you make, it still isn't enough. That's so true. I actually remember my uncle saying to me when we were just like getting into the housing market, he had said to us, buy a house that's at the upper end of your market, because if your money's not going into your mortgage, it's going to go somewhere else. And I was like, that's really true. And I see that all the time with people. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily the right choice for everyone. But in that moment, that that was a lot of wisdom for me, because I really believe that's true. And your story is different from ours in a lot of ways, but similar in that my husband is a public school teacher here. And because of not because of that, it's not the only reason we started homeschooling. But it kind of affirms us in our homeschooling because of the fact that he sees day in and day out what is being taught, what's um, being promoted. And um, it really makes us feel very comfortable with the fact that we've decided to do things differently. Yeah, you would be surprised how many men I meet at homeschool conventions in various places who um, do work in the public schools as teachers Mm -hmm. or sometimes administrators that Mm -hmm. say, this is the reason we're homeschooling because I know what goes on in this building and I don't want my kids there. And yet usually they're very dedicated to the children they serve. Absolutely. And they they stay there because they love the kids and they believe I can help, even though the system is dysfunctional, Mm -hmm. I can have a positive impact. Mm -hmm. And so there's a selflessness I really respect there. No, that's absolutely the truth. And that's the story I hear from him all the time. But he does say he could never be an administrator for him anyway. And his, the way his mind works and his moral compass He's like, I could not be an administrator in the system, but he loves working there and he loves the kids. And yeah, so it's, it's a hard thing. I don't know if I could do it myself dealing with those things, but I'm very grateful that he does what he does and that I'm able to be home with our kids. Yeah. Yeah. Bouncing off the public school topic a little bit, you make these videos online, these short videos. And one of them I stumbled across that I really enjoyed was your kindergarten video. And it discussed pushing kids who maybe have been failed by the public school system in their reading capabilities. Now we're pushing kids younger and younger up to like four years old to start reading earlier and earlier. And you're saying that's not the answer. You know, kindergarten used to be the garden for kids and play and all of those things are so important. And the failed public school system shouldn't just push kids earlier and earlier because it's not working. There needs to be a better solution. So if you would just talk through that a little bit, I really just enjoyed listening to that concept. Well, I'm I'm pleased that you bumped into my Instagram or TikTok video. Um, I've had a lot of fun making those because it's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, the unofficial Andrew Pudawa. I'm, you know, I'm the IEW guy, but on this one, I can say whatever I want. Um, yeah. So <laughs> if we were to kind of look at the history of education, we would notice that kindergarten as an idea kind of came from the German. It's a German word, kindergarten. And it was originally designed as a way to kind of get kids used to being in groups so that they would be able to do institutional school. So it's a very modern idea. But what we saw is a 
a gradual decrease in the effectiveness of teaching, I would say, basic skills, reading, writing, and calculating, Mm. um, as the result of modern education that had its inception in the early 1900s, but really started to be the dominant paradigm in the second half of the 1900s. And so the effectiveness of teaching began to decline from about 1970 to a point where today we're just at an absolute all-time low, a complete dysfunctionality of schools to be able to teach reading and writing and math. Now, the, the problem was that they didn't say, what are we doing that we might be able to do more effectively? They basically said, well, if we're not having success in third grade, then we better push it harder in second grade. Mm. Oh, now we're still not having good success. So we better push it harder in first grade. Oh, we're still not having success. Our third grade kids still can't read. We better start a pre-school reading program. And they just push it earlier and earlier and earlier. And, you know, they still aren't using the best methodology at any level, but this idea of trying to push it earlier has had more damaging effects than it has had any benefit. And the the huge danger of pushing a kid to read before they're developmentally ready is they will hate it. Mm-hmm. And if they hate it, then they're going to have this attitude, I hate reading. And that can persist for years, even past the stage at which they become developmentally ready to read. Um, many countries that have superior education in almost every way than we do in the U.S. or probably in Canada, uh, Scandinavia comes to mind. They don't really push reading or writing till the kids are around eight years old. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, if a child can read and they want to read at five, six, yeah, teach them. But when you push it at five and six, and then you bring in high stakes testing and you make that the central focus of primary education, you're going to just, you know, cause a lot of kids to hate school from the very beginning. You hear this, you hear people who send their kids to kindergarten or first grade and they're all excited for the first month or two. And then they start saying, I don't like school. And then they start saying, I hate school. And then they start crying and saying, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And the poor parents, they don't know what's going on in the school. They don't know why their child is hating it. They don't know why they don't want to go. And it's hard for them to figure that out because, you know, the school, the teachers may be telling them, well, you know, we're just, you know, able to work with kids where they're at. And we just, you know, we really need to get her reading, you know, so keep encouraging her, keep telling her. And and it's just this this cycle that has no light at the end of its spiral down. So yeah. uh, I, I wish more parents would understand that reading is much more a brain function than it is something that can be taught and learned on demand. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you have enough kids, you'll discover that you can bang your head against the wall using the best system you can come up with. And, and do it for two or three years and still have an eight-year-old who doesn't read. You can also have a child and not even try to teach them and they'll just suck it out of the air. They'll just learn to read from the environment, thereby showing that yeah, while there are better and worse ways of teaching, it really is a developmental thing. It really is a brain function more than an academic subject. And so 
you know, I don't know the solutions. We could also look at the incredible inefficiency of trying to teach 30 kids to read all at the same time, mm-hmm. who all have different levels mm-hmm. of readiness, different levels of experience and environmental impact at home. And some kids have parents who read to them and some kids, some parents, you know, some kids have parents who put them in front of screens all, all the time at home as a babysitter. And so, you know, it's just, it seems like an impossible problem. And I don't know any solutions other than get encouraging parents to be a whole lot more involved in the process, whether they choose to 100% homeschool or not. You know, one thing we would say, all parents homeschool. Every parent teaches their child at home something, whether they're doing it more or less or full-time or a little bit of the time. Every parent is always teaching something at home. And if every parent would do those things to cultivate and promote literacy and reading and writing and thinking and mental calculation and spelling, the kids will all do better in school if they Mm -hmm. go to school. But too many parents, I think, have just abdicated. It's like, I don't have to teach this kid. I'm paying for the school or the government's paying for the school, the school. And and honestly, the schools have, have worked real hard to convince parents we know what we're doing. We're the experts. Oh, yeah. You don't have to worry mm-hmm. about it. Stay out of our hair. And mm-hmm. so what used to be 100 years ago, much more of a partnership between teachers and parents has become almost, uh, you know, a, a antagonistic relationship in many cases. Yeah, all of that was so interesting. And hearing you describe some of those kids early on, early learning it brought back memories for me because I didn't start homeschooling until my oldest was just starting grade two and my middle was just starting kindergarten. And my oldest at the time we were told like, Oh, he's behind. Like, and I really did love the teacher. I loved the school. I also think I was really naive at the time. You know, it was before I really had opened my mind to thinking about doing life differently. Um, And it was stressful for me and it was stressful for him. And he would come home every day and he would be exhausted, but we would have Mm -hmm. these little books sent home that I would have to read with him. And it was torture. It was torture for both of us. And then we decided to pull them from school end of September. So it was just after he had started second grade and started homeschooling. And um, he is an advanced reader now and he is advanced in his comprehension. But if I worry that, well, I don't worry, but I do wonder if we had left him in school, how long that stigma of behind would have stuck with him. And now yeah. it's like, there's no chance that this kid could ever be considered behind. And I've let go of the concept of behind even because it was something that really held all of us back and stressed all of us out. And it was so unnecessary. Um So it's a shame, but it was certainly a learning experience for us. Um, And the way that you said that, you know, learning reading is more brain function than an on-demand thing. That has become so apparent. And once you learn that as a parent or as an educator in any form, you sure find a lot more freedom in life in general, right? So I appreciate that. And I actually, as you were speaking, I'm like, I really hope we have people listening who maybe are single. And would love kids in the future, or maybe they're just newly married and are thinking ahead to having kids. Because I do wish so much that I would have heard stuff like this before Mm -hmm. my kids got to the age where we were struggling with these sorts of things. 
Yeah. Well, that's why we're, you know, working hard to do what we're doing is Absolutely. to help the, the younger parents. The, the funny thing, you use this word, and I have heard this so many hundreds, thousands of times, a parent mm-hmm. will come and say, just took my kids out of school. I'm a little worried about my fourth grader. I think he's behind. Yeah. My <laughs> question is, behind whom? Exactly. Like, what yeah. are you comparing this with? Yeah. Are, are we pathologically comparing all children based on the fact they were born within nine months of each other? <laughs> right. It makes no sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And yet everybody assumes we have to do yeah. it this way. So just breaking that paradigm right there Absolutely. is helpful. So keep, really. keep up the <laughs> challenging that concept. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that starts very like right after they're born when they start comparing your kids on the growth chart, right? Mm. And they start the weight chart and the head circumference and then the milestones and all of that. And I just think about in America, in Canada, you know, how hyper-focused we are right now on individuality and uniqueness, but it's all from an external perspective. It's not about how your mind works and, you know, just your individuality from an academic standpoint. And really we need to be focusing on that a little bit more than the external individuality markers. So anyway, um, one of my friends just went to a conference that you spoke at this spring and she was really, really happy to hear from you and really excited that we were having you on the podcast. She mentioned that you spoke about beyond high school and what that looks like. And I know for me, this is something that I have a little bit of an alternate perspective on, but she mentioned that hearing you speak helped her have a calmer, um, like I guess a calmer perspective around her homeschool goals. So can you talk to um, what maybe beyond high school looks like or (laughs) what your thoughts are? (laughs) Yeah, my, my talk was titled Hacking High School. Okay. (laughs) And I was actually originally going to call it just don't do high school. Um, But my, my marketing director said, no, that's a little too edgy, but hacking high school, you know, rethinking the teenage years. And, you know, really this could be an entire podcast in itself, but one of the things that I have Uh, come to believe uh, from my own experience of watching all of my children become teenagers and grow up and be adults is that most of the academics that we do in high school don't really stick. I mean, you know, you take a a biology class and you remember, you know, what, 5% Mm. of that Mm -hmm. textbook's content you know, within two months of finishing the class, the amount of biology you know is is essentially as though you'd never took the class. Absolutely. And we do this, you know, with all these different subjects. And, you know, occasionally there's a good teacher and that teacher inspires you and you want to learn more. But, you know, the whole idea that academics is so ter- tremendously important, I think we all look back and say, well, where did I learn the most valuable stuff? very little of it was in a classroom in a high school. Most Mm -hmm. of it, for most of us, was outside school. Uh, A lot of it was opportunities to interact with adults in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a a guy uh, who wrote a book, uh, you may have come across it, uh, called and um, dumbing us down the hidden curriculum yes. of compulsory Read education. It. So good. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm a big Gatto fan. I actually spoke at an event where he was back. It was in Edmonton, actually, back in the, the O's. And uh, he said once 
something that just struck me as 100% true and extraordinarily important. And that is what every 13-year-old in the world wants more than anything else is real, honest to God, meaningful life and death responsibility for Mm -hmm. something. And that is exactly what schools contrive to prevent ever from happening. And so we have, you know, kids today in high schools are, they're at a high point of cynical. They are at a high point of, I don't care about anything. I'm unmotivated. Nothing means anything anymore. And how do we get there? Well, I think it's because we have detached them from real life. And so how can we, you know, in the homeschool or alternative ed ways, say, how do we create meaningful experiences for um, teenagers? And so that's really what my talk is about. I talk about um, speech and debate being a world where you have to hone your language arts of listening, speaking, reading, and writing very well. Um, I talk about the idea of kids getting involved in things like political campaigns or internships, um, getting involved in activities with a wide range of age with you know younger children and older students and working together in things like drama or um, competitions. And um, in the States here, we have a very rapidly growing among the homeschoolers is the dual enrollment idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is where you can, as a, you know, 15, 16 year old student, start taking accredited university level classes and put them on a high school transcript and have transferable university credits. And so this is growing very rapidly. And the fact is that your average, your average homeschooled 15 year old can read and write and do math circles around the average public school 19-year-old in a university class. So uh, a lot of what I've been uh, working with, and, and our company just recently uh, made an arrangement with someone who's providing uh, one year of college of, of composition and grammar and composition college credit, university transferable credit for what we produced as a first year high school writing class. Wow. So uh, this idea, I think, is gaining a lot of popularity and traction. But, you know, my, my basic message to parents of homeschool high school students is, number one, don't worry about transcripts. Transcripts don't mean anything. They don't mean you learned anything. It just means you did time. Mm-hmm. So essentially, do whatever you want, and call it whatever you need to. If you're homeschooling and you're writing your own transcript, just, you know, grow a garden with your family and then call it botany. <laughs> you know, um, study an online course on how to do photography and then put it on as photography. You know, read to your kids all day and call it literature, English. That's what they do in school is they talk all day and call it stuff. Uh, so do whatever you want, call it whatever you need to, Nobody's going to care and nobody's going to actually check on what did you do with all those hours? Because if they checked on what you did with all your hours, they'd then have to go check on every teacher in every school. What did you do with all that time? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and in most cases, you not only get to make your own transcript, you get to give your kids the grade you want them to have. So give them straight A's, throw a B (laughs) in there every now and then if you have to, just so it doesn't look 
you know, too contrived, whatever. <laughs> but really, you can bypass the whole dysfunctional college application process by start college with dual enrollment at 15 or 16, bank up a year or maybe two years of university credits, and then you don't even have to do the the whole you know, SAT, ACT, transcript-based application process. Although I would say at this point, most of the colleges are so infected with the woke mind virus mm. that I wouldn't pay for it, honestly, as a parent, unless, you know, it was one of the very short list of high quality Christian liberal arts schools that might be worth paying for. Or if you had a kid who was super solid in their faith, and they could walk in and they were going into a technical field like engineering or computer mm -hmm. science. But mm -hmm. um, I, I would say there's so many better options to going to a university right out of high school right now that you should not even worry about that, especially. And the thing that cracks me up is that parents with 10 year old kids are starting to worry about high school transcripts. So, mm -hmm. you know, don't. But yeah. that's that's a much longer subject than we can unpack fully. Yeah. Um, I, I know things in Canada are a little different because you've got um, university-specific application procedures and university-specific entrance exams. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that a well-educated homeschool kid who's read extensively and who has basic skills can read well, can write well, and even has multiplication tables memorized. I mean, most high school graduates can't do a single math problem without a calculator right now. I have a great appreciation for the Rocasa product line. In 2017, the founders of Rocasa decided they were fed up with toxic products and a broken healthcare system. I know many of you feel the same way. So they decided to actually do something about it and created a product line of over 250 natural products. Their products are for your home, for your pets, babies, face, and just general wellness. Since then, they've sold over a million products and they continue to make all of their products handmade just to ensure that they are what they say they are, that they are clean, natural products that you feel comfortable putting on your kids, putting on yourself, using in your home and with your pets. So if you would like to check out their product line, you can click the link in the show notes and enter the code BOOMCLAP to save 20% off your first order. Well, and I believe like you can challenge any exam, right? And so it just makes you wonder why you'd go through the years of torture when you could simply challenge you know, and, and likely be successful if you're someone who knows how to learn. I remember when we went into our first year of homeschooling and we kind of decided like by the seat of our pants, like it was just, I felt God calling us, us to it for a long time, but I resisted and resisted and resisted until finally I could resist no longer. And <laughs> it was a very quick decision once we did it. And I remember having like feelings of panic because like, I didn't have all the curriculum that I needed. And looking back, I'm like, oh, I was a different person. I was a completely different person then that I am now. Because I remember I spent like $200 or something ridiculous on a science curriculum, just science. 
and my kids were in grade two and kindergarten. And I was worried (laughs) that I wasn't going to get it in time. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like as the years have gone on, I'm like, all I care about at this point is that my kids can read really well, that they can comprehend when they're reading, that they can write and that they can do basic math. And that as my oldest is now 11 and as they grow older, that they will, you know, start to identify the things that they're interested in and what they want to pursue. And then we can reevaluate and head in those directions. But I'm just like, oh, the amount of stress that I put on myself that looking back now, I'm like, who was I? Who was I? Because I certainly don't recognize that person anymore. Um, So these things you learn as you go, but which is why I say, I really hope people that, you know, have young kids or don't haven't had kids yet, take the time to listen to stuff like this because you can think it doesn't apply, but you're giving yourself a gift by, by learning these things ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as we went through our seven kids, you know, the older kids hit teenage, we were much more into, okay, we have to do a high school curriculum. Right. By the last, by the last Mm -hmm. three, it was kind of like, okay, none of that's going to stick. None of it really matters. What matters is that this child is growing up with the freedom to learn how to learn, to pursue Mm -hmm. their interests. So unlike the schools that start little kids with kind of this big level of freedom, and then we channel them into these narrower and narrower Mm -hmm. uh, academic funnels as they get older, I think it should be the opposite. Mm -hmm. We should be focusing on basic skills Mm -hmm. in earlier childhood And as they hit teenage years, giving them more and more the maximum amount of freedom to learn how to use their time well, learn how to study what interests them, learn how to interact with adults and and work in in a real world with adults Mm -hmm. as much as possible. And, And so I think we've got it completely upside down in the schools, but fortunately we can look at other ways to do that and and give that freedom. And, you know, I would say the three youngest of my kids who had the least amount of structure in their teenage years mm-hmm. are probably the best off in terms of having strong interests and being driven to pursue them. All my children have a very entrepreneurial bent mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, the, yeah, the three youngest all um, have their own business or family business. So that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's so good to hear because, you know, even though I'm finding so much more freedom and Rita, I don't know how you feel as I go along, like finding more freedom in all of this, you have those moments where you get that little voice in your head reminding you that you're doing things differently and you're like, Ooh, should I, you know? Um, and then you remind yourself, yes, this is better. This is better for our families is better for my kids, but you were human. So that voice is bound to like make an appearance every now and then. Right. Oh Yeah. Yeah, that voice does make an appearance, but mm-hmm. I think my um, little bit of rebel streak and uh, aversion <laughs> yes. to rules that just naturally flows within me has kind mm-hmm. of uh, helped me start out on homeschooling with uh, freedom as the mindset. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. Do you think that we are tricked as parents a bit into falling for the system of school um, to get our children molded to benefit society in a way that doesn't necessarily benefit them. Like the, the way they're being taught doesn't always benefit them, but we're tricked maybe by our competitive nature. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, Oh, 
Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that you know that's why Gatto's books are so helpful for people because he taught eighth grade English in Brooklyn, New York for seventeen years. Mm-hmm. He was the New York State Teacher of the Year, New York City Teacher of the Year. But he he realized what the truth of the system was. And so his book, Underground History of American Education, actually, it it goes through and documents with primary sources how education changed in the late 1800s, early 1900s to be something completely different than what it was before then. And it was the Industrial Revolution. It was Darwinism and Deweyism. Yeah. It was, you know, the German psychologist who wanted to engineer society by engineering education. It was financed by the big industrialist money, Ford, Carnegie, Rockefeller, Mellon. Mm-hmm. Th- those are the names. Those are the benefactors of the modern teacher colleges. And so the whole idea was, yes, let's get kids out of the home and teach them exactly the same thing in the same way, according to the same schedule, to get the same result. And that was the Industrial Revolution. That's what you did. You standardized everything. And then the, you know, the end of it is you get predictable, controllable, obedient factory workers, voters and consumers who will do and buy and vote exactly the way you tell them. And you give them a couple false choices. You can you know, buy Pepsi or Coke, you can vote Republican or Democrat, but (laughs) you know, there's, there's no freedom in that. And then of course, as we moved out of an industrial age into an information age, people started to notice that the educational system was failing because we don't need people that operate like widgets. We don't need legions of factory workers who don't think. We actually need people who do think only the school system is not designed to to do that. And, you know, even Bill Gates, with whom I would disagree with about almost everything, <laughs> you yes. know, has said the modern school system is not meeting the needs of the modern world. But now mm-hmm. we've moved from an information age actually into what would probably be called, uh, you know, a, a conceptual age. We We now don't just need people who can deal with information we need people who can actually think about information in in totally different ways. In fact, I heard uh, a new career. I had never heard this term until very recently. I was talking with someone, he's a young guy, he's about 20 some years old. I was talking about the effects of AI on higher education. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, the new career is prompt engineer, right? We, we don't even need coders anymore. AI can do coding. Mm-hmm. We need prompt engineers. What are prompt engineers? People who know how to construct really good questions. Mm. So we're beyond an information age. We're in an intellectual age. Mm -hmm. And the schools are completely unable to nurture this because that is individuals connecting with their own mind, their own worlds of experience, their own spirit. If you want to, you know, admit that people have souls which the schools won't do, mm-hmm. um, to to come up with solutions both both on a personal as well as a community basis um, for problems that are coming faster and faster and overwhelming. I I I only I see almost the only hope is that parents will reclaim responsibility for the nurturing of their children. 
from schools that are, have lots of good teachers, but the system itself is not able to reform into meeting the modern needs. Uh, it really needs to just totally collapse. And then we redesign ourselves like a phoenix out of the ashes. And that's going to be extremely painful. So I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be very interesting. I mean, that's what I say all the time about everything going on in the world. I think that we're delaying the pain by not allowing collapse of everything because it's just continuing this process on until eventually it it just has to, it has to come to a halt. Right. But I really do think that's what I was trying to get at. I think that all of the things you said about education, absolutely true. But I almost feel like we've been tricked because we do appreciate that unique nature and individual nature of each person. And it's highlighted, but at the same time, we deny it as parents when we send our kids into these factory schools. And it's like our competitive nature they know that and they're playing upon that. And, mm. you know, by the standardized test, like you want your kid, you want your kid to do good. You want your kid to get the best job. And this is the only way to do it. And so they use that against us to get us to put our kids into the system. I don't know. That's just where my mind is on that. And maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like yeah, they know I, how to pull our strings a little bit. <laughs> I, I would kind of point out, I think this might be of interest to the listeners. There's kind of a history of education that can be boiled down to very simple changes. Originally, there was God in schools. Mm -hmm. And that was the Christian tradition for, you know, 15, 1700 years, where it was all about the cultivation of the human being. It was humanism in its Christian sense. All We're all individuals. We are all different. We have different missions, different souls. And the study of the liberal arts, the, the arts of freedom, were those things that allowed us to essentially fulfill our humanity. Then they kicked God out of schools, and that was modernism, and that was Darwinism. There's no such thing as a soul. We can't talk about it. We can't have God in schools. So that creates a vacuum. So now you have to have a new God. What's the new God? Well, then the next God became creativity. Um, if it was creative, it was good. If it was good, it had to be creative. It was all about self-expression and discovery. And, you know, that was Deweyism, um, misguided and applied universally. And that's where we started to see the decline of basic skills in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And it failed. Everybody knows it failed. So in the 80s and 90s, you saw them kick creativity out of schools. They gave it lip service, but the new God became standards. So in the States, we had, you know, uh, no, no child left behind, race to the top, common core state standards initiative. All these states had standards, standards, standards. Somehow we're going to solve our problems in education by dictating that everybody, by merit of being a certain age, must be able to do X, Y, and Z in these different skills and content areas. Well, you know, that's never going to work because there will always be somebody who doesn't meet the standards. Well, what do you do then? You have to lower the standards. Well, there's still going to be some people who don't meet the standards. What are you going to do? Lower the standards. Somebody still won't. What are you going to do? You have to be egalitarian. You get your standards so low that everybody can meet the standards. Then pretty soon someone comes along and says, these are very low standards. We need to redo <laughs> the standards. And you're on this crazy teeter-totter that's failing miserably. Everyone's trying to teach the test. 
all the textbook publishers, um, own the testing companies and vice versa. And that didn't work. So you never hear anyone talk about standards anymore. It's the old God. What has replaced standards as the current God of education? Technology. All we need is more tablets and Chromebooks and iPads. <laughs> let's let's equip every six-year-old with an iPad in the whole Los Angeles Unified School District. And somehow this is then going to al- allow us to deliver the personalized, individualized education that every child needs. And it's failing miserably. And I, you know, I don't know how far this will go. Will they actually replace all teachers with AI holographs the way Bill Gates predicts? Wow. Or are we going to disband schools completely and every kid's going to have a personalized AI tutor and stare at a screen all day at home? And are parents going to allow this to happen? What, you know, it's like until the family is restored as the primary Amen. unit of education for children, it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. Yes. So, yep. uh, and, and then the family will have to put God back into education and say, here are the basic worldview and principles upon which we believe humanity exists mm. and educate children as individuals in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you read the book, Excused Absence? No, I haven't. It's by is Douglas, it worth me reading? Douglas Wilson. Wilson, is that right, Cecily? Oh, I forget well, the I know Doug, Oh, I know Doug Wilson very well. He wrote... Um, he wrote um, Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning, which yes. was the first book on classical ed. I actually went to Doug Wilson's church when we lived in Idaho for a while. Okay. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, excuse that, absent. Yes. I, that book I was, haven't read the book, but I know of it. Yeah. Okay. It was good. And it spoke to a lot of the things that you just said. I just recently read it, but very short and worthwhile read for listeners. So um, you got into the expressing yourself thing a little bit there, but... Um, another video that I watched of yours was expressing themselves versus expressing ideas. And (laughs) I found that to be a great concept to just touch on here. So I am always in teaching writing. I always come up against the problem of kids saying, I don't know what to write. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to say. I can't think of anything. And that's the perennial age old problem of teaching writing. And the idea, and I I know because I remember this back in the 60s when I was in elementary school, um, you know, the teachers would give you some kind of prompt or some kind of story starter, and then you had to kind of just make it all up. And I remember I didn't know what to write, and and I would get like, once upon a time there was a, and then (laughs) dead in the water, you know, how how am I going to think of something that nobody else ever thought of before? And I I have since, you know, in the past couple decades of teaching writing, come to realize that nobody creates something from nothing. Only God does that. The rest of us are kind of stuck stuck with what we got, right? Mm -hmm. You don't make a cake. You you get ingredients and you assemble ingredients into a cake. And it's the Mm -hmm. same thing with writing. You don't just produce something from nothing. You have to assemble ideas into something and those ideas have to come from somewhere uh this is interesting little um english word study here uh for a long time the word creative writing was an idiom all over the place in Mm -hmm. fact 
you could take classes in college on creative writing. And the word creative comes from the Latin verb creo, which means to create. So in the Latin Bible, it's in principio deus creat, right? In the beginning, God created from nothing, the heavens and the earth. We don't do that, which is interesting because in the study of classical rhetoric, the term is invention. Mm. Invention is from the Latin verb invenio, meaning to find or discover. Well, you can't find or discover something that isn't already there. Mm -hmm. So I always say to the kids, look, you don't have to make up something that doesn't exist. You just have to find something that does exist in your memory or in your imagination or in the world around you. It's about discovery, not about creating from nothing. And then I also noticed that I am not a creative person, and I'm not sure that I have ever actually had a completely original idea. <laughs> Everything I've ever thought that's worth thinking came from somewhere, and the ideas that I have and share with people are really the combination and permutation of previously existing ideas. Mm -hmm. And so when parents walk up to him in convention and say, oh, I just want my son or my daughter to be able to express themselves, <laughs> I challenge that and say, um, writing is not about expressing yourself. It's about expressing ideas. And maybe if you're lucky and you live long enough, you might have a completely original idea to express. Hasn't happened to me yet. But if we practice learning how to express ideas by collecting up, organizing, and writing and speaking, then we, we will have a chance of contributing to the great bank of universal human knowledge. Um, but it, it's funny. I once did have an idea, and I thought, ooh, I just thought of something really cool. And then I realized Bonhoeffer wrote about that a hundred years ago. <laughs> and then I realized that Bonhoeffer actually got it from Aristotle. So, right. you know, is there really anything new under the sun? Mm, that's so good. And actually, as I was watching that particular video of yours, my mind started going that way. I'm like, well, C.S. Lewis must have had an original thought and maybe he did. But then I'm like, but he must, just like I learned from him, he must have learned from someone and then he must have learned from someone and the list goes on and on and on and on. And it's actually very cool to think about. Um, maybe people would find that depressing that, you know, we're not nearly as original as we think we are, but I, there's something beautiful about this accumulated knowledge. Um, and we can take some ideas and turn them over and be like, that's a bad idea and throw it out. And then the next idea is like, oh, that's a, that's a beautiful idea. And we can hold on to that and it can help shape us, which is really quite cool. But I can just imagine that when we started this little section of our conversation talking about self-expression, before you started describing exactly what you meant by that, it probably got people's bristles up a little bit because the God of self is so important, especially when parents are thinking of their children, right? They're like, these are their beautiful little babies. And of course they have a self that needs to be expressed is what they're thinking. And so the way you laid that out, I think is really good because it, it's hard to argue with that. And I think it's really tied into the self-obsessed culture that we have to think that we should all just be able to express ourselves when for kids, especially they don't really 
all the time even know who they are at this point, right? They're, they're still very much in the learning stages. So that's a very tall task to ask of children. Well, and, and I would like to add to that the idea that imitation mm-hmm. has really been thrown out with the modern uh, obsession with self and self-expression as well. Because if you think about education, pretty much from the pagan pre-Christian times, what would you do to learn how to communicate? You would memorize the speeches of other great communicators. Mm-hmm. You would retell information. Mm-hmm. You would look to those great people and want to be like them. Then with the you know coming of Christ, th- there was this whole idea that the way we reach our highest level of, of best self is to imitate Christ. Mm-hmm. And so we look at the character qualities. We look at the the things that Jesus did and say, how can I be loving? How can I be selfless? How can I be, you know, perseverant? How can I be humble? How can I be like that? And then we have the great tradition of the saints throughout all of Christian history. And so it was not just how do I be my best self by trying to imitate Christ, but look at all these other people who became saints by trying to imitate Christ. And so I can uh, have the courage of Joan of Arc. I can have the, you know, the the intellectual vitality of Augustine. I can have the uh, selflessness of Mother Teresa, you know, and you look Mm -hmm. through all of history and you say, the best way for me to be the best person I can be is to imitate the best people that I can find by, um, by knowing them through what they wrote or the stories about them or knowing them in person. But now there's this kind of idea like, no, you don't want to imitate anyone. You want to just find out who you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you strip away the logos, the word, the, the governing principle behind that, there's nothing worth being left. Mm-hmm. I mean, the last thing I would want to be is Andrew Pudua without Jesus in me mm-hmm. at all. You know, mm-hmm. that would be a horror. That would be a monster. Mm-hmm. So um, when, we te- when we're teaching kids, we, we naturally say, look at that person. Isn't it great the way they, you know, did that, the way they mm-hmm. had that character quality? You know, you look at the, the movie here. I don't know how, how much traction it got in Canada, but it shocked everybody. The Sound of Freedom movie yes. with Tim mm-hmm. Ballard, mm-hmm. that whole story. Why is everyone, why is this movie outselling Mission Impossible? Mm-hmm. Because this is a hero who operated with sacrificial love and courage because he was motivated by the love that Jesus had for the least of these. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we all want in the deep core of our soul, whether we admit that or not. So, you know, to, to bring that into education, that's the fulfillment. That's what kids want. They want heroes. Yeah. And if we don't mm-hmm. have Christian heroes, then we're going to have non-heroes. Yeah, it's come to a point yeah. where if someone accuses you of imitating someone, it's an insult, right? And actually just recently in my house, I had listened to a podcast, like it was um, like a family-centered podcast and it had given me an idea. And I was like, oh, I want to implement that in my family and in my home and told my kids about this idea. And my oldest says, you just heard that on a podcast and now you want to do it. I'm like, yes, I did. And that's okay because that's how we learn, right? And that's that's how we grow. So it was just kind of funny the way he was like saying it as if it wasn't your idea. So why are we doing it? But I'm like, that's precisely why we're doing it. 
Well, and and it shows how pervasive mm-hmm. this thinking is in the culture. Absolutely. That even your young son, mm-hmm. you know, who, who hasn't necessarily been in the world all that long, hasn't mm-hmm. been in the public schools where that is, but it's ever present. It's in the air we breathe. True. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, 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 you know, it's, it's tragic when it replaces real education with this, this, I don't know. It's not even an imitation of anything. Mm-hmm. I like to use the analogy. If you wanted to learn to play the piano, what would be better? You know, listen to someone who plays something well and try to imitate that mm-hmm. or just sit down and fool around with the keys and make noise. I mean, how are <laughs> yeah. you going to become a better musician? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. Imitate the best people you can find. I like that a lot. And mm-hmm. I think about the books that kids are reading these days and that's something Cecily and I have talked about quite a bit is wanting to read more old books. And I just think that that's something kids aren't exposed to as much. Even as we go to the library, we're going to go to the library after this. A lot of the books they have in our small library now are newer books. And I, if I ask for an older book, sometimes they don't have it. And so it's kind of hard to imitate the best people when everything's fresh and new. And it's almost... I don't know, the language in the books that kids are reading these days is so dull compared to reading a book written even just 100 years ago, you know? So anyway, hard to imitate the best people when we're all just trying to be ourselves, I guess, and not do that. So um, I guess the last thing we had for you that, well, we have a lot of other things we could talk about, but the last thing I know Cecily really wanted to cover was just some kids, and I know this is a question that we've gotten before from our listeners, Reading, writing, all of that comes really easy and naturally to some. To some, it does not. And so what are the best tips, practical tips you have to help parents who are trying to help that kid who it doesn't come naturally to? Well, the first is to not have anxiety about it because all children are gifted differently. And the most important thing isn't what you can't do well. The most important thing is what you can do well. And so if you have a child who has a strength in music or art, you want to cultivate that. You know, you, you think about a a business. You don't look at the people that work with you and say, okay, what's everybody bad at and how do we make them good at what they're bad at? You say, what is everybody's strength and how do we let them use that strength to contribute to what we're doing? So I think a lot of parents are more worried about the weak parts of their children's performance, whatever you want to call that, than they are about accentuating the strengths. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that would be one thing I would strongly recommend that people consider is not everyone is going to have the same strengths. We all would like our kids to be able to use language well. And some kids are going to have a natural uh, ability to do that. And other kids are going to have less of ability, but everyone can improve from where they're at. Um, So uh, again, getting off the uh, comparing your kid with other people's kids and just comparing your child with himself and say, is he improving Mm. in this area? That's the most important thing. But to get a little bit more technical, we could uh, point out that the four arts of language, listening, speaking, reading, and writing, 
are very, very interdependent. In fact, um, reading and writing are really a function of, they are dependent upon listening and speaking. So when you are reading, you basically are decoding stuff and hearing what you're telling yourself and knowing if you understand it or not. So if you want a good reader, the single most important thing you can possibly do is read out loud to that children, to that child, and talk about what you're reading. Mm. That's what builds vocabulary. That's what builds comprehension of complex sentence structures. That's what builds the imagination. All of those things that are going to be vital when that child is older and reading on their own. So if you want good reading comprehension in a 14-year-old, the most important thing to do is read to them out loud for the first 14 years of their life. Mm -hmm. Um, Same thing with speaking. Um, you, you want a child to speak well. Well, they have to have the they have to have it in the brain to get it out of the brain, right? So you look at listening and reading as inputs, speaking and writing as outputs. The outputs are always going to be dependent on the inputs. Mm-hmm. A child is not going to use a word they've never heard. So the more words they hear, the more vocabulary they will have accessible. When children memorize language, poetry scripture, prayers, excerpts from famous speeches. You know, 150 years ago, children were responsible for huge chunks of memorized stuff. Uh, Just read a book like Little Britches or Anne of Green Gables, and you Mm -hmm. see that children in the 1800s would memorize lots, I mean, huge amounts of poetry and scripture and other things. Well, what does that do? It creates a fluency. It moves words mm-hmm. from the passive vocabulary, i.e. I can hear that and kind of know what it means, into the active vocabulary. I can speak or write that word with confidence. Mm-hmm. So um, both being read to out loud and then memorizing and reciting language, that is the most significant thing you can do to actually improve reading comprehension and writing skills. And then, of course, other things that we've kind of thrown out um, the importance of children learning to read out loud to other people, oral mm-hmm. reading. Uh, you know, that, that is, a, it is a skill that you develop, and it also serves as a control of error. Uh, and yet, you know, you can't really do that in a classroom, have everybody read out loud. I mean, you could take turns and everybody gets to read three sentences, and it's as boring as it could possibly be. You know, but at home, you can have kids read to you while you do the dishes for them or something. Mm-hmm. And then writing, um, you know, if you're looking at just the, the, the mechanical infrastructure you need to put words on paper, it, it, you start that process with copy work, just, you know, copy stuff. That's what six, seven-year-old kids should be doing, not expressing themselves on blank paper. Mm-hmm. They should be copying with as much accuracy as they can, high-quality language from poetry or scripture or literature. And then you can move into teaching the the technicalities of English grammar and composition, which is, you know, what I do a lot of the time. But if you don't have a foundation of, if you don't have a good database of language in the brain, it doesn't matter how good your teaching system is, you will not get something out of the mind that isn't in there to begin with. So I think most parents and teachers should start thinking 
about the outputs by considering what are the inputs. That's so helpful. Really, really helpful. Thank you for that. Man, I just feel so honored to be able to have this conversation mm-hmm. today. I feel so thankful for this podcast that we get to talk to people like you. I mean, this yeah. really is beneficial to parents, but also to me as a homeschool mm-hmm. mom. You know, this isn't just beneficial to our listeners, it's beneficial also to us. So, mm-hmm. one last thing, if I can ask you, this is maybe a more of a personal question, but in reading your bio on your website, you mentioned your beautiful and heroic wife. And I feel like it's very normal for somebody to say, my beautiful wife, that's that's a normal thing. But heroic isn't something I typically hear men describe their wives as. So I wondered if there was any story behind that. I don't know. I just like knowing about people a little, <laughs> a little bit. Well, my wife... Um is so incredibly supportive of me and always has been since the early days when, you know, we were poor and it was tough and I was working really hard. And, you know, she, she never criticized me. She, she would correct me when I had errors, attitudinal or behavior errors, mostly in regards to the children. But she never criticized me either personally or to other people. She mm-hmm. somehow managed to realize that that was a very unhelpful thing to do. And she also is a real pray prayer person. She's like a professional prayer, mm-hmm. and I am not. And so my lack of prayer, um, I think, was made up for with her consistency of prayer. Mm -hmm. So her faith in me, her, you know, holding her tongue and her mind against that very human tendency to criticize Mm -hmm. your, your partner, your spouse, and then her just relentless storming heaven. She's, she's probably the, 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 the reason I have a chance for eternal life in heaven. Mm Um, next to, you know, Jesus Christ, uh, she, she is the salvation for me. And she also had to understand that I would go off and, you know, I traveled almost a hundred days a year for probably close to two decades. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I traveled a lot and, you know, she's got a lot of kids. We had seven. So there was only always, you know, three, four, five at home. And that's hard when I'm gone four or five mm-hmm. days. And for her to understand that that's what we as a family were called to Mm -hmm. and to make the sacrifice she had to make for me to be gone, that was hard. That was, I know, the hardest thing. Um, and, And that was heroic. That was a heroic level of sacrifice for a woman to make. I used to tease her, said it could be worse. I could be a a submarine officer and gone for six months at a time. But, you know, the truth was she understood that I was going to go out and get the people who, you know, loved what I was doing and, you know, build a business and be in the spotlight. And she was going to stay home and change the diapers and teach the kids to read and, and keep the house clean. And I, I just, I know for a fact that, her job was way harder than my job. Only you don't get a lot of credit for that. And so I guess that was the word that came to my mind is 
how do I try to show the world that she was the greater half mm. on on our team and still is. That's yeah. so good. We actually, I don't know if we've done a whole episode on it, but we mention it in frequent episodes, you know, like all these names in history, you know, people will remember your name because of the things you created and the things that you did. But the names not written in history are often the ones that made the biggest impact. Mm -hmm. And your wife absolutely sounds like one of those women. So that was really beautiful. Yeah, it was. Thanks for sharing that with us. <laughs> a little bit of an off the beaten path question, but I don't yeah. know. It just, it piqued <laughs> no, my interest. Actually, um, it isn't that infrequent that really? other homeschool moms will yeah. ask me, like, mm. how did your wife do all that stuff? Not yeah. even knowing what she did, but assuming. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But, you know, we're, when I think everyone who decides to put their children ahead of their own ambition or desires or needs, that's a heroic act. When you mm -hmm. put another human being above yourself, that is an heroic thing. Mm -hmm. And the unsung heroes of the age, if we survive this age, I think many of them will be the homeschool moms mm -hmm. who's, like you said, nobody knows their names. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's great. All right. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time today in this excellent conversation. Can you just share with our listeners where they can find you? Sure. Yeah. Our website is super easy. It's IEW.com. Um, finally bit the bullet and bought the three-letter domain name. Certainly <laughs> glad I did back when it was reasonable. Mm. And um, and then, uh, you know, you can follow me on Instagram, Andrew Pudawa, where my little fun videos are. And of course, good. I have a podcast. Uh, it's called the Arts of Language Podcast. And uh, we uh, mostly are talking about listening, speaking, reading and writing and all things that way. And uh, then uh, I do travel a bit during the season. So you can follow on our events page off our website and see what cities I'll be in. That's great. Oh, the last thing I'll tell you is I was listening to your podcast a while back. In the episode, you described getting a notebook and you've just been writing one sentence uh, entries every day. And that inspired me because I had said, you know, perfection and sometimes leads to procrastination. And I often won't do things because it feels like this big task, but I bought a notebook and I'm determined to just write down a single entry for my memories every day, instead of, you know, making it this big, long paragraph, I can just write a sentence. So that was That's super bad. helpful. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. I've been doing that for two years and it's really interesting to go back and say, what was I doing on this day one year ago? And and then I'll read stuff. And it, I'm talking very cryptic, sometimes just mechanical stuff. But it brings back whole swaths of memory that yeah. I never would revisit without that one sentence a day reminder. So Love yeah, I'm, cool. I'm super glad I started. I wish I'd started when I was young like you. <laughs> young. <laughs> That's relative, right? <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks again. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to find us outside the podcast, you can find me, Cecily, on Instagram at cecily.dickey or on my website, thegracetogrow.com. And you can find our podcast on Instagram at boomclappodcast. And you can find me, Rita, at ritarogersco.com or Rita Rogers Co. on Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>